Welcome back to the Shit You Don't Learn in School podcast. This is Calvin Rosser. And this is Steph Smith. And today we're going to be talking about being a magnet, not a jail. Steph, what the hell does this mean? Be a magnet, not a jail. Is this something that you coined? I think I actually did coin it. I don't think I stole this from someone. And it's this idea that I originally thought of in the context of work, but hopefully today we can talk about applying it elsewhere. But originally it came from this idea that many companies talk about attracting top talent. And I don't think they actually set up the right systems or the right environment to attract top talent. And one particular example of this are companies that prohibit employees from working outside of the company, whether it's on side projects or moonlighting or doing consulting. And I can see the argument for saying, hey, this is not appropriate. We want you to focus here. We don't want you to split your time and energy. But the most talented people are also the people who have ambition and creativity and apply that elsewhere inevitably. And so this idea of being a magnet, not a jail, I actually think is creating these environments where you're attracting top talent. Hopefully you're also creating an environment where there's a product that they want to work on and a team they want to work with. But I think of that as, again, creating something that's attractive, that's positive some, that people want to be a part of instead of being restrictive, which you see many companies do where basically they say, hey, if you're going to work here, you can't do this and that. So that sounds to me like a great ideal, and maybe you should be the spokesperson for certain companies. But just to push back for a second, so I think Google was probably one of the first companies that allowed this in some capacity where they gave you some percentage of time that you could work on things that weren't related directly to your job. I think Gmail came out of someone spending their free time on something that wasn't their core job. But if you look at today's environment, some people would argue that especially at larger tech companies, there's a coddled environment in which you have everything provided for you. As companies started to compete for top talent, they said, you also have amazing meals at your disposal all day long. You have your laundry done for you. You have a gym on site and you have endless things. And as a result of all of that, people have become accustomed to work providing everything in their life and have looked to these types of benefits. And what that actually has attracted is not the most ambitious people who then use their free time to create value within a company and then outside of that, but actually people have become somewhat complacent because so much has been provided to them. I love that you brought this up because I have so much to say. So first, I'm sure many people have seen these TikToks going around where there are these millennials who work at fang companies typically, and they really just go throughout their day and candidly, it looks very chill. Now, in the defense of people creating these TikToks, you don't know how much work is actually being done outside of the 30 seconds that they're showboating. But yes, there is an argument to say that at many of these large companies that are extremely successful, there are many people who are just coasting. But I would actually say that a lot of the benefits that these companies are providing are for the masses. They are not actually directed at top talent, the people who are extremely ambitious. They are attracted at just getting every one of their employees to be a little bit happier, to work a little longer in the office. And what I actually think is really interesting is how do you create an environment that is curated to the most ambitious people? How do you get those people in the door? And so something that inspired us to talk about this today is on My First Million, they had Palmer Lucky on, who is one of the co-founders of Oculus and now has moved on to found Anduril. So he's extremely successful. I think he's a billionaire. And at Anduril, 
one of his policies is that Anduril will actually pay for all of the tools that their employees use, even for their side projects. And see, this is where I think you're actually not curating to everyone because not everyone has side projects. Actually, I think most people in society, when they finish work, they just go and hang out and do hobbies that they enjoy. But I do think a great sign of top talent is the ambition to do more. Maybe we should do an episode on whether that's a good or bad thing, but I do think that is a signifier. And so by adding this specific perk, I think it's actually a fascinating way to be a specific kind of magnet. So maybe even a modifier on this idea of be a magnet, not a jail, is be a specific kind of magnet. Attract a specific group of people instead of just something that maybe sounds good to the masses. So if you were starting a company, what would be the incentives that you would use and not use? It sounds like you think that the large tech companies have maybe gone too far. And that's probably because they have cash cow business models and they need to hire just tons of people. And so maybe they don't need to be as discreet on what they provide as they did when they were 50 employees or 100 employees. It sounds like you're thinking about something more nuanced in terms of an incentive structure. I do actually like the idea of what you just said, which is paying for subscription services or other things that help people create their side projects. That's a big expense on my end. And I know I would value that if I went to a company and I actually wouldn't go to a company just for that, but that would certainly be a perk that would be like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. That's tailored to people like me. And it's very different from, hey, you provide like a service to do my laundry or a gym that I can work out in, which personally, I think I can just do on my own and isn't necessary from a company. Yeah, I think that even though the idea of paying for tooling for side projects sounds really minor, I think it's really self-reinforcing, meaning that at the beginning, maybe it doesn't seem very significant, but it attracts a certain type of person. When they go to a job description, they see, oh, okay, these people value something. And as I said, I think it attracts a certain type of talent. And then once that talent is in-house, they attract more people, that culture truly gets built. And I think a parallel, which sounds silly now because so many companies are remote, was the companies that offered remote work as a perk back in the day. That attracted people who really prioritized flexibility and freedom and the ability to create things. And I actually wrote this article a while back, which if you think about how companies design their incentives, I thought it was funny that Many of these companies would always say, basically every company would say, hey, we want people that think outside of the box. But the incentives that they were actually designing in terms of who they were trying to bring in the door was not that at all. In fact, literally they were getting people to sit in a box all day long, if that makes sense. And so that was the juxtaposition that I was commenting on. But to your question of what incentives would I design, I think I'd have to think about it a little more, but I would start with the archetype of the person that I want to attract. And then I would backpedal and try to figure out what on that hierarchy do they value the most and then develop, as we said, this magnet, this set of things, this environment that they would thrive in. And I think over time, it is self-reinforcing. So one question I have about this is just, how do you attract a diverse set of talented people? So from my perspective, people who do creative projects on the side or have, say, ambition outside of work, that can come in many forms. So it could be creating online businesses, it could be building a following, but it also could be just investing your time in hobbies or activities you enjoy, or really being like a family person. And 
people from all of those different pools and interests can be what we call top talent and big contributors to companies. And so do you worry with an incentive system that is too specific that you would attract only a certain type of top talent and the company may suffer overall from that? Or do you think that's actually something companies should do? I think that's actually a really interesting point. I think you're right that the type of person that creates side projects may skew in certain directions. But at the same time, as someone who creates side projects and has been in this world for a couple years, there is a lot of diversity and that could span race, gender, but also age. There's tons of people that I've met that are parents that also find a lot of joy in these side projects. And I think that's actually what's important is that companies often view these side projects as a form of competition for their employees' time. And really, I think it's an outlet. In fact, I've written articles in the past about not needing to quit your job to make. And part of the reason that's been important for me is because if I went all in on one thing, I think I would actually struggle to have or to integrate the amount of creativity or excitement into my work, if that makes sense. Like I would just be so concentrated in one area that I would get really bored or really bogged down. So it's possible that certain types of perks are going to attract certain types of people. But I actually think really what a perk like the one we described from Anduril is screening for are just people who have ambition and creativity and have shown an outlet, a proof point that they do this on their own time. And so it's likely they would apply this to their job as well. That's interesting because I guess when I think about that perk, to me, it's one that probably is too narrow to attract maybe the breadth of people that you might want to. And so it would be attractive to someone like me who is actively doing this and paying for things on my own. But I can think of many other talented people who I'd love to work with who this wouldn't work for. But going back to an earlier thing you said when, let's say 10 years ago, when companies were fully remote, I think both you and I saw this. We were at a fully remote company. I think we started seven years ago or six years ago, and it wasn't that common at the time. This was one of the largest fully remote companies. And one of the amazing things about that is it had one of the quirkiest, but most diverse groups of people across age, race, gender, interest, geography. And it really was self-selecting for, as you mentioned, people who value freedom and maybe doing things differently, but the way in which they exercise that freedom, whether it was time freedom or the ability to design their schedule looked very different. Some people were kite surfing in Cartagena. Other people were globetrotting around the world. Some people were just spending lots more time with their family when they had young kids. And I met so many really talented, ambitious people at that company who had just such a different set of experiences in life. But there was this undercurrent of these were the people looking at the world differently and looking to do things differently because there was a big barrier to finding a fully remote position. And that almost self-selected for a very interesting group of people that was quite diverse. Whereas, say, a perk paying for your subscription costs for projects, I don't think has that same breadth when it comes to what it would attract with talent. Yes, exactly. Because on the note of diversity, again, I don't have data on this, but if you want a diverse range of people, you're not going to get them from copying the same perks or the same culture that every single other company has put on their website or has deployed within their organization. And so if you are a company that wants to attract different types of talent, and maybe you're not, but I think a lot of earlier stage companies are in this spot, how do you expect to do that if, again, you're copying the exact same benefits, the exact same culture code, the exact same training as 
all of your competitors, but also all of these larger companies, which often are much more heavily capitalized. And so really, if you want to attract a unique group of people, you have to figure out what set of incentives really drive that uniqueness. I talked before about this idea of wanting people to think outside the box and literally putting them in a box. You see people do the same thing by saying, we want people who are entrepreneurial, but then they won't let them work on entrepreneurial ventures outside of their job. So I don't know, there's just a lot of these contradictions in what people say they want, but then what they're actually incentivizing. One thing that came to mind as you were speaking was back in the day, and I don't know how far back, but people used to stay at jobs for many years and potentially even decades. You could be like a lifer at a company and that was seen as a good path in life. And the modern landscape is very different from that. And I think it increasingly is becoming that way. And what I think some companies have done is in an attempt to recreate this old model where people stay with you for a long time, they've tried to provide everything to everyone. And they've ended up attracting people who don't even stay very long and also don't invest themselves in the company because they can just go to the next one with the next best set of perks. And actually one model that I've seen work really well specifically for young, ambitious people who are hungry is a CEO comes in and says, look, I know you're only going to be here for a couple of years and that's totally fine. I'm going to give you an inside look at how to build a business and really get you in a place where you're having a lot of impact and you're learning a ton. And I don't expect you to stay for the long term, but if you kick ass here, you're going to be set up for the next thing you do, which maybe is starting your own business. And I really like that philosophy for young people because they come in and they spend two or three years, they do kick ass, maybe they get promoted and rewarded for their efforts and are measured on results. And like any good mentorship or apprenticeship, eventually this person exceeds the current company's needs, or maybe they're not as valuable there, maybe the company grew and they go on to something else and that's totally fine. And I think that's a good approach for that group of people, which kind of hits what you're talking about, which is how do I attract a certain group of people, make sure that they have value of the company, but don't create some unrealistic standards that I'm going to give them enough perks that they stay forever because I think people just aren't thinking that way anymore. They're definitely not. And to your point, one of the things that I've liked about some of my bosses in the past is they've told me what you said, but they've also said, and when it's time for you to leave, we will help you find a job or we are there to support you. This is not some negative experience that we're going to go through when you leave. It's a very normal understanding that we pay you for work, you do a good job, and then we support you on your next journey and vice versa. And I also like that you brought up the changing nature of the workplace or jobs in general, how people are moving around a lot more. And I think the natural response for a lot of these companies is to say, oh, whoa, 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 what can we do to stop these people from leaving? When in reality, I think the best thing you can do is, again, take this framework of being a magnet, not a jail. Because these companies who end up creating more of a jail structure end up really forcing people out. And the first people to leave are the people with options. And often the people with options are the most talented. So really what they're doing is effectively creating a funnel and the first people out of that funnel are the most talented. And then the people who stick around are the people who really you don't want to be there. As you said, they tend to be the ones who are coasting more. One thing I have heard about this idea of letting people have freedom and work on side projects and creating this really awesome sounding environment for employees, and by the way, this was applied to remote work in the past as well, was that, well, you're going to have people who abuse the system. So I want to hear from you, Cal. Have you seen that happen when we worked at a company that was fully remote or 
if you were at companies before that allowed people to do some of these things, would you say that people abused those rules or would you say on the whole, they were a positive mechanism for the company? I think both of those things can be true. So there were certainly people who, I don't know if I would say abuse the rules, but they took advantage of the system in which they operated. And if their goal was not to ascend within that company, then maybe they spent a lot of their free time and resources going toward the other things that were more important to them. And it's really hard to filter that out. We have episodes, I think, on like how to hire people. And I don't think we should talk about that here. But the best way to filter that out is to measure people on results. And if they're not achieving them, then you know to take care of that in one way or another and to reward the people who are doing very good work. And I think what I saw is often some of the top performers, they not only kicked ass within that company, but then they took advantage of these perks to do things on their own. And those became like a compounding flywheel of things. And we can even look at you as an example. You've created a ton of things over the last five years. You've done all of that while being a full-time W-2 employee. And I think you've built an awesome relationship with most of your coworkers and a reputation for being someone who does really good work. And I think in many ways, the side projects that you've done, even if they're not totally related to the company that you're working for, have ended up coming back in value to the company in different ways, whether that's, hey, this is a company that works with Steph Smith, a great creator, or you've been able to mention those companies and some of your side projects in ways that make sense. There's all kinds of ways in which I think that values come back to the company as well, or at least it has never hurt them. And so I think that archetype of an employee who works both at the company very hard and does a good job and does side projects as well certainly exists. I think another underrated thing is it's free skill development for companies. I tweeted something today, which is related to what we're talking about, where I basically said, employees having personal projects should be viewed as a sign of ambition instead of competition. And I really liked one response, which said, those employees are learning outside the job and bringing new skills into the job with no expense to the company. And I think that's anecdotally, at least for me, been really true. I've learned a ton through side projects and then been able to apply it to my real job. Yeah. And I think something people get wrong on this topic is it's not the perk that someone can go work on a side project that makes a bad employee. It's not that you have that perk, they go and do that thing and they stay at the company forever and milk the system. They're only going to be able to stay within the company ecosystem if you don't have a results-oriented environment in which you're actually measuring your employees. If you have that, then you can see the abusers of the system, if you will, very clearly and quickly. And it's not a long-term drain on the company. I think it's within these larger mega structures where people have tons of benefits. It's kind of hard to fire them. And they've gotten used to a company providing probably more than we should expect from a company that you end up with, quote unquote, abusers of the system and all these parodies on TikTok, which have people showing their day, which is just eating food and relaxing and having a good time. (laughs) I mean, those TikToks really for a second make me want to go live that life. (laughs) But yeah, I think in my experience, the people who abuse the system are often the minority. And then within that, as I said, it's actually nice to have that stuff bubble to the surface earlier. Just to go back to one of your prior points on side projects, building skills for the company, basically at no cost. SEO has been an important skill in many of my jobs. And I learned it in my second job. But actually, it wasn't until I built my own website and I started building links and trying to get my content out there and learning how to write an article that was optimized for Google that I really picked up the skill. And one of the things was, I had a more personal relationship with that project and I really wanted it to get traction. And so I was willing to invest more time there and I was doing it a lot on the weekends and stuff. And 
at the end of the day, like now I have a blog that I think gets over a million visitors per year. And I feel like I understand SEO very well, partly from what I learned on the job, but partly what I learned in my side projects. And it certainly fueled into me being a better marketer at the places that I was at. Totally. I can think of so many examples where my skills came directly or at least more strongly from my side projects. I mean, one very discreet example is that no job taught me how to code. I did that on my own. And I did that out of my own ambition to create side projects. And then now, even though I'm not a developer, I think that very, very, very concretely has helped me in jobs, especially when I was a product manager. So yeah, I think many people are forming these policies around the few people who inevitably will game the system. They will abuse the rules. But I actually think people do more of a service to not just their employees, but actually their business in forming a structure that focuses on the people they want to attract instead of the people they want to detract. Another thing that came to mind here as a benefit is, at least in my idea of what motivates people and how they stick around for a long time, I think one of the most motivating things is progress. Basically, when you work hard and you see the results that you're looking for in a domain that you care about, that's extremely motivating. And so I think one of the ways in which people become demotivated It's not just that work is so hard or you're working so long. It's the fact that your inputs to the equation, all of that hard work and effort are not translating to outputs that are motivating to you. And that could be like, hey, the business that you're growing is going through a tough spot. And it's not even that you're not doing the right things. It just takes time to find the traction that you need within your company. But if you have a side project where you're actually getting progress and you're able to express your creativity, maybe even in a different way, that is a way in which you can stay motivated as a person. And I think that doesn't mean that all of your energy goes to that thing where you're getting the progress. What it means to me is that you actually don't just get bummed out and burned out because things aren't working at your real job. You actually have this like escape. And often that escape is flexing a different set of muscles or maybe an even more creative part of your brain. And I think you then translate that back sometimes to your real work and you don't become burned out as often, even though you may be working, say, longer hours than if you had no side project. I could not agree more with that because I've experienced exactly what you're describing so many times in my career when I've had side projects and my full-time job and the ability to scale up or down was so important. And I also agree with this idea of burnout being more tied, in my opinion, in my anecdotal opinion, to the progress you're making and not necessarily the hours you're working. So at this point in the episode, we've talked about how different companies can set up incentives to attract top talent instead of worrying about how they detract other types of talent, maybe mediocre talent. And we've talked about it in this frame of how to be a magnet instead of a jail. And I want to apply this framework, or at least see if we can apply this framework to other areas of life. So let me start with, again, the company lens, but maybe a different framing of it. And it's with companies and their users instead of companies and their employees. So recently I saw Dharmesh Shah, who is one of the co-founders of HubSpot, where I used to work, post something along the lines of the difference between companies that focus on their own company and their own product and companies that focus on their competitors. So basically what he was commenting on was this idea that companies that focus on creating a really great product for their users often succeed more than companies that focus on what are my competitors doing and how do I stop them from doing that? And how do I make sure that we win? And I think of it similar to this be a magnet, not a jail idea where really what that 
framing is saying is focus on how to create something that people want to engage with. So focus on yourself instead of what's happening around you. And naturally, if you focus on creating value for people, whether it's through a product or through the incentives at a job, then people will be attracted to you. Again, this idea of a magnet. So that's another maybe application of this idea. What do you think about that? At least in the companies I've worked on, it certainly doesn't seem smart to just focus on what your competitors are doing and do that at the expense of, say, your customers. At the end of the day, like, what are the products that you and I buy and love? They have a certain rhythm to them. They have some sort of brand that we resonate with. They speak our language and their marketing copy, and they actually solve the problem with the product. Otherwise, we return it and we go to another competitor because the marketplace is saturated for problems that need solutions. And so for the company to succeed over the long run, clearly there's a compounding advantage to focusing on the customers that you have and the ones that you eventually want to attract and to just do that better than anyone else. One idea that I'm not sure about yet, I'm just thinking about it fresh, you could almost apply the same thinking to there's a lot of companies that develop like a hot reputation, especially in tech, and they build that reputation through Twitter. And this is the next big company. This is the next big founder. Let's listen to everything they have to say. And then eventually they're a fraud or the company doesn't work out or (laughs) whatever. There's all these like bad stories there. At the same time, there have been many people who have leveraged, say, social or a PR focus as a mechanism for attracting top talent because they've built buzz around their company. And actually, one of the things that people look for in jobs is prestige. And I would consider the cool factor of a company to be prestige. So maybe in the early days, it would be perceived as very cool if you were working at Tesla, right? I mean, if But isn't that still a magnet? That's what I mean. So that's a magnet. My point here is a focus on PR as a way to generate buzz for your company strikes me as very similar to focusing on your competitors in that it can be a complete waste of time and destroy your business. But at the same time, it can actually be an amazing magnet. And the line there is actually very tricky. It can be a distraction, but also a superpower. What I would say is that, yes, PR is external facing, but really it's still about positioning your brand, your company, your product in a specific way. It's almost like a tool to do that versus I think the companies that are strictly focused on what their competitors are doing don't actually have a point of view on what they want to achieve or what they want to service for customers. And so instead, they're just focused on almost like chasing other products. And in fact, I've seen this mostly at the indie hacker level, but people will create something great and then a bunch of copycats will arise. And naturally, it's very upsetting, but those copycats will always be chasing the original because oftentimes they're just copycats. They don't actually have a point of view. And so I do think there's something really important and compelling about having a point of view. And I think you could call it PR, you could call it social media. There's probably other labels for it, but I actually think that is a form of a magnet. You're like calling your tribe. You're saying, this is what we want to achieve. And I think sometimes it can be applied in shady or ineffective ways. But I think of actually Elon Musk as an example with Tesla. He has no PR people. You could say that his social media is a form of PR, but he actually has hired no PR folks because he instead attracts people through a different form of a magnet. So I guess maybe the distinction here is that you can do things outside of focus on your customers, but don't do those things at the expense of focusing on your customers. 
Yeah, I guess so. I mean, that was just an example of this idea of magnet versus jail. Another example of a jail would be those companies that literally, instead of focusing on how do I make a product that people want to stay with, they implement roles like you have to call in to cancel your account, even if you didn't call in to start your account. I hate those companies forever. Yes, everyone does. And they are underrating the effect of word of mouth and the fact that those customers that turned are definitely not coming back. And so, yes, I think those companies are, you could say, more short-term thinking. And I think that's also a facet of this idea of magnet versus jail. A magnet may take time to attract the right people, but once you've done that, as I mentioned before, it's somewhat self-reinforcing. A jail is really like, okay, we're going to retain you and you're stuck here. And at the beginning, that sounds really great. But then over time, I think they underweight the impact of word of mouth and really morale and the fact that people won't stick around in a jail forever. So obviously this pod is about more than building companies and attracting talent. I'm wondering on this theme of be a magnet, not a jail, is there something here that applies to other areas of life? I actually think it's pretty universal and I want to brainstorm with you maybe other areas where this is true, but one area that's immediately comes to mind is relationships. So we actually talked about relationships in many of our prior episodes, but if you apply the same logic, I think it works. As in, if you're in a relationship and you prohibit someone from hanging out with members of the opposite sex or not being able to engage in certain activities that they love because you're worried about them or you don't trust them, that kind of sounds like how some companies operate, but you know that's not going to work in a relationship or at least a long-term relationship. Instead, the relationships that seem to work over long periods of time have an element or a foundation of trust. And really, each member of that relationship understands the importance of bringing something to that relationship that keeps the other person from wanting to leave. Or actually, you could reframe that and say, it's not even about wanting to leave. They enjoy being there so much that they're drawn to the relationship, again, as a magnet instead of a jail that's more restrictive. See, I always thought reading all of your partner's text messages and putting air tags on all their stuff was (laughs) a good strategy. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure it works for some people for some amount of time. But yeah, you get it. Most relationships don't operate that way. So I think that's another area where really what I'm getting at is how do you focus on yourself and providing value for the world instead of focusing on, hey, how do I stop these things that I'm afraid of happening from happening? That kind of reminds me of one of the big complaints on dating apps is that most of the dates go to a very small percentage of people. And in the case of dating apps, that's the most attractive people. And so before dating apps, that would happen in real life. Like you would see the most attractive people in the bar, but it wouldn't happen on the same scale. Instead of the top 1% of, say, attractive people getting 95% of the dates, maybe it would be a much lower number than that. And so there was like a fair playing field. At least this is the argument that people make. And I think to some degree, it's true. But at the same time, that is not a winning mindset if you want to date. It's not, oh, we're in this age of dating apps. And so now I can't get dates because I'm not in the top, whatever, 1% of attractive people or something. I actually think that's like a call to make yourself interesting enough in some way that you become a magnet as you're talking about. 
You don't try to like lock in the only one to two people that talk to you. Instead, you try to attract a much wider group of people by doing something different. So when I think of my own experience with dating, I was nomadic for a period of time, which was somewhat unusual for the time period in which I was doing it. And when I would go through New York City, a place which is known to be good for dating, but transient and all these things, I certainly wasn't even close to the top 10% of attractive people. But what I did have was something that was different from the average New York profile. I wasn't an investment banker and I didn't have a small dog and a small apartment that was too much money or something. I don't don't remember the exact archetype of New Yorkers, but there was a certain culture to the profiles you would see there. And instead, you saw some guy who was like free-loving, traveling the world. And for some percentage of people, that was interesting. And those were the same people who were making some sort of trade-off and attractiveness for the interestingness of the profile. And my point here is that became a magnet. And I think in relationships in general, one of the key things is if you want to attract a life partner of a certain ilk, you need to become, say, like worthy of that person by working on yourself first. And that means, okay, so you may, maybe you have some downsides to you, but you need to become like the best version of yourself to be someone worth being with for the long run. And that immediately becomes a magnet to a wide group of people. Like how many people do you meet that have some superpower? They like listen intently and you're just like captivated by their presence or they're just really ambitious or maybe they're just really curious and they can even be awkward and nerdy. There's all kinds of things that we find attractive. And so I think it's a lame excuse for people to say, oh, just attractive people are winning and I can't do anything about it. And that's the exact mindset that leads you to not being a magnet in the dating world. Exactly. And I don't know the exact percentage, but I have heard this stat about X percent of the most attractive people get all of the likes or all of the dates on Tinder. Now, if it was true that that's all that matters and there wasn't the ability to almost manifest yourself into a magnet, then you would see that only those people were in relationships. And we know from our evidence within society that many more people find happy, successful relationships. And so I do think it's important for people to realize that you have the autonomy to become, I'm using this analogy too much, but the magnet that you want to be. And another example of this is I often hear people ask, how do I become a good writer? And perhaps one of the best pieces of writing advice that I've heard from many good writers is that you have to live an exciting life right? You can't sit down at a page and prior to that have done nothing interesting and then expect a bunch of interesting knowledge to just flow onto the page. And so I think this is true in general, where if you want to attract people, whether it's a company, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's a friendship, another example is if you want to be followed online, well, there are outliers, but I think generally it's people who have found their edge or found this interesting aspect of themselves that other people don't have and that some other group of people is attracted to. And so I guess the pursuit becomes finding your edge. And so we've just talked about that a little bit with dating. I think another example is if the dating apps aren't working for you, and that is just like not a fruitful way to live an exciting dating life as you want it, learn how to be awesome in person. Like that still exists. And I know that For some people, that may be odd or something like that. But at least I, for myself, have found that I somewhat enjoyed dating apps, if you will. But I was, I'm much better in person and just getting to talk to people. You can feel their energy, you can smell them. There's a science behind the smell them thing (laughs) that's definitely important towards attraction. And 
I think what we're trying to combat here is putting yourself in a jail for no reason and then blaming things outside of yourself for not getting to where you want to go. I think on that note, you have this idea of a magnet in a jail. And in order to be a magnet, you need this edge, this force of attraction that draws people to you. Well, you can never find that if you're focused on more of this zero-sum jail approach. So coming back to the idea of a relationship, if you're always focused on, okay, who is my partner texting? Or where are they going? Or what can I prevent them from doing? Naturally, you can't really apply your energy into being the magnet who someone wants to spend time with. And the same thing is true with companies, right? If you are so focused on making sure that you're monitoring your employees' time and you have these mouse trackers and you are so focused on how they're communicating with other employees instead of the output they're driving, naturally, you only have so much energy, whether you're a single person or a larger entity, that you're just applying it in the wrong places. And by applying it in the wrong places, I don't know if you can be a magnet and a jail at the same time. So it's almost if you choose to be jail you are prohibiting yourself from applying yourself to be a magnet. Where do you think this comes into play most with relationships? Is it people are scared that their partner is going to fall in love with someone else or cheat on them and they end up doing weird things to try to prevent that outcome? Or is it a broader thing? Candidly, I don't know. But I guess one other framing for this magnet jail thing is carrot versus stick. And so I think maybe if people are thinking about applying this in their lives, it's If you don't want something to happen, which can be in a relationship, in a company, in a job, on a sports team, whatever it is, I think the natural reaction, maybe just as humans, maybe this is biological, is to think, how do I stop this from happening? Instead of, how do I create a carrot that incentivizes someone to want to behave in a certain way? I like that. And it actually reminds me of what we talked about a bit in our last episode, where For most of our relationship, I made more money than you or we made equal money. And then that has recently inverted where you make significantly more than me and I'm on a certain path. And there were a couple of like paths forward. One would be, oh, I can try to just contribute financially to the relationship just like Steph. But that didn't actually make that much sense with my goals. And then the other option was, oh, maybe there's other things that I can do that are of value. And so that could be planning the logistics for the family or making your life easier or just doing things that add value to the relationship. And we didn't think about it necessarily in these terms, but the point is maybe there was an imbalance that existed in one domain and it was just like, well, how can I make up for that? I have more free time. And maybe there's ways in which I can create a better partnership for us as a whole and a better experience for us as a couple, which draws us just closer together. And that's not coming from this scarce mindset of, oh, I'm going to lose Steph if I don't do something. It's more like, hey, we want to have a great time together. How do we make that happen within this new paradigm that looks a little bit different than what came before? And I think that would have to be true over a multi-decade partnership, which is something we're working towards, where there's just ebbs and flows to things. And people will add value in different ways. People will go through ups and downs. And at the end of the day, the glue that sticks things together is, do both people think that this is an awesome enough thing to work on, even through the difficult times, to make it something that you continue doing? And if not, you're probably going to leave. Yeah. Marriages don't last because someone set some rule and the other person didn't break it. Marriages last because both people want to stick around. And just expanding outside of the, say, romantic relationship domain, I think the same thing applies to friendships. And so when I think about my friends, 
no one friend fulfills all of my desires, but all of them are some magnet in some different way. Someone has charisma. Someone is a logical problem solver. Someone is really compassionate. Someone is going to be there when it counts. And all of these things fill different human needs. And I love these people and I'm there for them. And over time, you build this trust and this friendship. But ultimately, like what attracts you to someone and what keeps you them over time is they have some sort of magnet that is not them trying to hold you down and be like, you've been my friend for 10 years. You have to keep being my friend, even though I become a big piece of shit. Like, no, if if your friends are becoming a piece of shit, if you will, you're going to try to hold them accountable and help them. But over time, I think especially now we're getting to that age. If that's the case, you're probably going to slowly exit from the friendship. And that can happen in different ways. But the way that friendships stand the test of time is like they continue to be a magnet to you for some reason. So you decide which people are worth investing in and you see how they grow and change over time. But if that magnet leaves, then that can be a catalyst for a friendship ending too. And I think the same thing applies to romantic relationships. As you were talking, something that came up for me is just this idea that magnets are not things that attract everything. We've all held a magnet before and it doesn't attract a piece of plastic and then Similarly, two magnets can really attract each other, but two magnets can also repel each other. So in order to be a magnet, as in something that attracts other people, you have to have a slant, a point of view, something special, as we've talked about. And naturally, if you have that, you will really, really, really attract people that you want to attract, hopefully. And then you will repel some people, but it's like that common trope where if you're saying everything, you're saying nothing. And so I think that maybe is also a takeaway for companies or individuals and friends, relationships. It's just as simple as it sounds, you have to provide value and value is not just some blanket term of being okay at everything. It's finding something that you're uniquely good at. That reminds me of some trauma from my college days where there were these older guys in my fraternity and they were describing me, I don't think directly to me, but it eventually filtered its way down. And they're like, yeah, Calvin's okay, but he's like a plain plate of pasta. You know, you'll deal with it, but it's just not that enjoyable or something like that. You know, you get... <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Sounds terrible and definitely hurt the old heart. But I think at the core, what they're saying is, at least in their experience of hanging out with me, it wasn't one in which generated interesting ideas or had the say flavors that other people did. And I think at the time that actually made more sense when I think about that relationship. And over time, one of the things that I've worked on is, yeah, how do you become a more interesting person? Or how do you find that edge that works for you? And that way you're not a plain plate of pasta to too many people because that one hurts. It still hurts. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like the takeaway here is not just be a magnet, not a jail, but don't be a plain plate of pasta. Yeah, I think that's right. Just don't be a plain plate of pasta. All right. Should we end it there? I think so. I got some tears to let out now. (laughs) Okay. Well, if you want to find us on Twitter, I'm Steph Smith IO. And you can find me at Calvin underscore Rosser. And you can find the podcast account at Sidlis, S-Y-D-L-I-S. Thanks for listening. Until next time. (laughs) 